according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Proverbs chapter 20. I believe we introduced this last week. Is that right? We've had one week now in Proverbs chapter 20. And so now we have our second week. Not sure how... uh, long it'll take us to get through 30 verses. I thought we were speeding things up a little bit and then we hit chapter 19 and that kind of slowed things down again. So uh, anyway, we'll see. I keep giving that to the Lord and trusting that uh, that He'll lead and direct. But uh, to be 20 chapters into a book now that's got 31 chapters, I know some of you have been waiting for Proverbs 31 ever since we first started the book of Proverbs. <laughs> and sorry about that, but 31 takes a while to get there, you know, and if we just raced right through, what would we be doing with the first 30 chapters. So anyway, we will get to Proverbs 31, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Before we get started this morning, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. We need a moment of silent prayer, confess any sin, to quiet our hearts, to humble ourselves under the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your faithfulness. Uh, This is our grace provision. You have blessed us in your grace to have a lampstand, to have a local church where the Word of God goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept. I thank you, Father, for the uh, every grace provision that you've made, including the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the teaching ministry that is active every time we assemble together. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. We call upon that faithfulness once again here today to, uh, to teach us, feed us, and bless us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week we were looking at wine. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. We have seen wine in the past. This was the first point in the outline. Proverbs has mentioned wine in a couple of different contexts, both chapter 4 and chapter 9. The admonition against drunkenness makes its first appearance here. And so when we're looking at the drunkard, we have chapter 20 and verse 1, and then in three passages that follow, Proverbs 21, 17, Proverbs 23, and uh, Proverbs 31. We took a look at those last week. We moved on to verse 2. Perhaps even more unwise than drunkenness is to provoke political authorities to anger. And it's interesting to have a political verse in a season such as this when our nation is going through the political upheavals and the riots on the streets and protests and everything else. Uh, But to anger the king is what we see. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. And, you know, the the duly vested authorities that are over us are given by God, that the authorities that are in power are there in the will of God, and that they don't bear the sword for nothing. And uh, other applications that uh, we could connect to this are, uh, are interesting. And then even to combine the two, I thought it was kind of amusing to go ahead and take the drunkenness from verse 1 and provoking the king in verse 2 and realize that both verses are illustrated uh, in the book of Esther, um, verse 1 and verse 2, because you have drunkenness between Haman and, and Ahasuerus, and then uh, angering the king, and you end up with the death of, of Haman there in, uh, in Esther 7. 
there's also an eschatological reality connected to this. So when we read, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion, he who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life, we're not just talking about wicked kings. We're not just talking about um, an unbeliever or someone that's not on doctrine or someone. This could be a righteous king. This could very well apply to King David. This could apply to any of the good kings of Judah in the Old Testament. This does apply to Jesus Christ. And so I want to take a few minutes this morning, I promised this a week ago, let's turn over to Psalm 2 and see the millennial fulfillment of this. Because uh, Proverbs 20 and verse 2 has an eschatological application. Psalm chapter 2, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. One of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, and and, uh, we discuss it frequently in connection to hypostatic union, in connection to Jesus Christ and His uh, millennial throne. The key verse we're headed for is verse 12, but understand that's the conclusion to the entire psalm. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? By the way, this is a Davidic psalm. You don't have uh, David in the prescript here, but when it's referenced in the New Testament, it's cited as being Davidic, and so we have no problem accepting it as such. Uh, But why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? So we ask ourselves, all right, context. What's the context for this? Well, okay, here's a clue. The nations are in an uproar. Well, that's been ever since. (laughs) I mean, seriously, this could be from the Tower of Babel onward. When has this not been the case? The people's devising a vain thing. But we have a coordinated effort among the nations and among the peoples. Not not every people has a nation, uh, but we have the combination of the two, the nations and the peoples. And they're, they're united, okay? So we have a united nations kind of structure. All right. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. So we have political figureheads and then we have the people who really call the shots. Okay. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, you might think those are human beings. But if you have a divine viewpoint, you understand that uh, Satan and his fallen angels uh, have uh, uh, sovereignty as they manipulate things. The power behind the throne is usually an angelic power as we understand from the book of Daniel and other places. So reading from Psalm 2, again, the nations are in an uproar, the peoples are devising a vain thing. They have a singular goal. They have an objective. Okay, And they're going to say out loud what their objective is. So the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers. Reading from Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His Mashiach, against the Lord and against His Christ, against the Lord and against His anointed. And uh, so long as uh, the talking heads and the commentators and people in the news that try to tell you what's going on or try to explain things, if, if they don't explain it in spiritual terms, if they don't explain it in Satan's rebellion against God the Father or his Antichrist's rebellion against Jesus Christ, then they don't have the biblical explanation for what's really going on. We understand it's a, it's a hatred for God and it's a hatred for his Christ. So it's a re- rebellion against the Father and the Son, which we know is the spirit of Antichrist. 
And then here's what they say. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now this is the biggest clue of all so far, working our way through these early verses of Psalm 2, when we're trying to establish a context for when the, uh, the real application of this will be fulfilled. You know, like we said in verse 1, you know, it's pretty, pretty generic. When are the nations in an uproar? You know, when are they not in an uproar? That's kind of been characteristic of all of human history. But now we're getting to be more specific. The nations are objecting to the sovereignty of God over them. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't like being under Jesus Christ's control. And it'll get even more specific when we see in verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So for Psalm 2 to be fulfilled, we have to recognize that Jesus Christ has to be seated in Jerusalem on the throne of David and that the the throne of David is going to have dominion over the whole earth. In other words, it's a millennial psalm. Okay, in, his, in times past, it was never fulfilled historically. David never had, he had peace with his neighbors because he conquered most of them, right? And then the ones he didn't conquer, he made alliances with. They, uh, in in uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, for example, sent cedar and, and helped supply material for the building of the temple. They had a, a friendship alliance there. So David had... Um, defeated his enemies. He had uh, treaties with the, with the neighbors. He was at peace on every side. But as far as drawing global tribute is concerned, that didn't happen. Didn't happen to Solomon's day. Now Solomon did receive tribute. He received gifts. He would receive embassies and visitors. The Queen of Sheba would show up and they would bring presents. But as far as global dominion, whereby every other nation had to appear before him and pay tribute, that's waiting for Jesus Christ. This is what's going to happen when Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David. And every year, the Gentile kings are going to have to come and pay tribute at the Feast of Booths. That's going to be their required annual pilgrimage. Every king of the earth. And so these kings are going to hate it. And they're going to say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want this authority over them. And so when you see satanic rebellion, uh, rebellion against authority, uh, shock of shocks, that's uh, <laughs> it's par for the course. And it's a preview for what's coming up. We're not there yet. So in spite of everything that's happening there on earth, that's verse 1, 2, and 3, God is laughing in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So you and I, we can be like-minded with God and have a relaxed mental attitude that uh, the newspaper exegesis doesn't scare us. We're not panicking over current events. We can just laugh with God, knowing that His plan is, is unfolding from Alpha to Omega. And even if Satan thinks he's thwarting it, it's just something else that God prophesied thousands of years ago and He knows what He's doing. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So understand, they said their thing, God said his thing. Their thing is, we, we, we were done with, we don't want God. We, we want to tear the fetters up from us. 
against, uh, it's, a, it's an attack against Yahweh and his Mashiach. Jehovah and his Christ. Or we would say today, God the Father and God the Son. Okay? And God the Father is saying, no, he's my king, he's where I want him, he's on that throne. <laughs> so clearly now, the battle lines have been drawn, <laughs> and uh, both groups aren't going to get what they want. And we know how it wins, God wins, and uh, he gets what he wants. He magnifies his son. Because this is not a conspiracy, and this is not a secret. This has been a plan since the Alpha moment and even before. This goes back to the Eternal Life Conference. This goes back to the plan of God that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all agreed to. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So when you consider the divine decree and you consider the plan of God that was launched before the foundation of the world and how step one unfolded with this statement, he said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. The very first thing <laughs> that came into existence, the very first thing, you know, you think about everything, you think there's God, and then there's everything else that's not God. Okay? And only God has been here forever. Only God is the I am. Only God has eternally existed in his eternal existence from eternity past to eternity future and everything. So at that very moment, when something comes to be that's not eternal, something that begins, something that comes to be, as soon as something enters into existence beyond God himself, we have what I, what I refer to as the alpha moment. We now have the moment which every other moment follows. We now have a time dimension. We now have a, a reality called before and after. And, and everything that happens after that alpha moment is after. And the whole dimension of time now exists because something has come to be. And the thing that has come to be is presented right here. Today I have begotten thee. And when God the Father begets the human nature of Jesus Christ, when he begets what we would think of, let's put it in today's vocabulary, the soul, the human soul and spirit of Jesus Christ. When God the Son became the God-man, we have the very first today there's ever been. Today I have begotten thee. You notice it doesn't say what day that is? It doesn't say what day today is? What is today? You know, we talk about today, and that's today, okay? But yesterday was today when we were there, tomorrow is going to be today when we get there. Today is today right now. See, because we're these finite relative creatures and we're just moving through the time stream one day at a time. Here we go. So day after day, as long as it's called today. Well, how long is that going to be? When will it not be called today anymore? Okay? Because we're actually headed for an omega moment. We're headed for the age, for the, for the world without end. Amen. We're headed for the, that omega moment beyond which is the eternal day. Okay? Anyway, stay tuned for that. Back to Psalm 2. So the world is furious. They want to get rid of Jesus Christ off his throne. They don't want God and his rule. But God says, no, this is the, this is the decree. And uh, his plan is centered on his beloved son. 
He goes on to say, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And so now this is a father who wants to give even more to his son than he's already given to his son. He's already installed his son on the throne. He's already, his son is already seated upon Zion, my holy mountain. He is ruling over the nation of Israel. Remember the land grant boundaries to Abraham. He's got boundaries. Doesn't, the, the, Israel is not the whole earth. Israel is the land grant that's promised to Abraham. And beyond those boundaries are what? Gentile nations. And those Gentile nations are the, the ones that are complaining. Those Gentile nations are the ones that are fomenting rebellion. And they also are going to be given to Jesus Christ. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. So Jesus is going to have his dominion expanded. In the millennium it's one thing, but on the new earth it'll be something else altogether. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> it doesn't sound easy. It sounds like it's not pleasant. It sounds like there's conflict. Um, if, it was, if, they, if they liked it, if they wanted it, if they weren't grumbling, you wouldn't have to break them with a rod of iron or shatter them like earthenware. The millennial kingdom is a rough kingdom. It's like uh, you know any... Any military force knows this. When you conquer enemy territory and you hold it, you're subject to insurgency, you're subject to resentment, you're subject to rebellion. The millennial earth is occupied territory. And Jesus Christ rules as the conqueror, but it's still full of of, uh, sinners. Okay? I want to make sure we're clear on this. Because all the unbelievers get sent to hell, the millennium starts with 100% saved people, but as 100% saved sinners saved by grace, tribulational saints. And they're born again, they're saved, they get to enter into the millennium, but they start having babies that don't all get saved. And even those that survive the tribulation and they enter into the millennium, they still can go carnal, they can still go negative. How long did it take the Red Sea crowd to get through the Red Sea and then start pouting about it afterwards and wanting to go back to Egypt? I think there's going to be some tribulational survivors that start off the millennium and start grumbling about how great things were back when Antichrist was running the, running the show. They're going to long for the good old days that they're going to call what we call the tribulation. They're going to say, man, that was great when the dragon and the beast were, were running things around here. So, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Keep that in mind. Anytime someone tries to paint a, uh, sometimes the millennium gets painted as if it's a, a flowery beds of ease kind of thing, uh, 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 rainbows and, and, and unicorns and, and all kinds of just sunshine and happiness. That's not the millennium. The millennium is rod of iron, shatter them like earthenware. Okay? Don't ever lose sight of that. And if you need more scripture to add to that, how about, um, I'm going to hold my finger here, but Psalm 110. Let me give you another one. I can give you dozens of these. But Psalm 110, when he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he says, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 110, 
Verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. That's not pleasant. That's not fun. You see why he needs the rod of iron? You see why he needs to shatter them like earthenware? All right. Anyway, that's just an extra credit. But it goes well. Psalm 110.3 goes well with Psalm 2 and verse 9. Then comes the warning. And this is what's in perfect agreement with our passage this morning from Proverbs 20. Verse 10 of Psalm 2 says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Show discernment. I just realized I haven't been putting my Bible window up here. All of YouTube is now up in arms saying, we don't have our Bible window. All right, I owe YouTube an apology. (laughs) Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. It's a warning, and it's a warning very similar to Proverbs 20 in verse 2. You don't want to anger the king. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. He's the only king that is worthy of temporal submission as well as spiritual. The only king ever that demands worship and deserves worship. No human king should be worshipped. But the God-man demands worship. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. This is the pinnacle of don't anger the king, provoking the king. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Of course, the millennium ends with the Gog-Magog rebellion and the armies of Satan are surrounding Jerusalem. It's curious that uh, they demand the release of Satan out of the abyss after Jesus has been there for a thousand years and they want Satan released. And, uh, you know, so I watch the news and I see all these protests and all these things and, and they want, they want uh, they're, they're making demands and now there's a section of Seattle now that's been taken over and blocked off and, and all these things and they want to they demand uh, no more police. No more police. Like, just, okay. And what color is the sky in your world? You know, I mean, as long as we're pretending that, uh, that things are just going to be marvelous and wonderful, it's about as insane as saying, take Satan out of the abyss, put him on the throne, get Jesus out of here. Say. I don't know why that shocks us. They, they demanded, uh, they wanted Barabbas to be freed and they wanted to crucify Jesus. You ever think about that? And, and how the typology of that, the demand for Barabbas' release and the demand for Jesus to be crucified, that's just foreshadowing of what's going to happen when they demand Satan to be released and they want Jesus gone. This is their, uh, this is their rebellion. All right, the last thing I'll say on this, and then we'll move on, but this has been good. I'm glad we took the time to do this. Let's turn over to Zechariah 14, and I'll show you one additional passage. There are so many. One additional passage that centers on millennial rebellion. So um, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah 14. 
Oh, and just type it here. That makes it easy. And so we have an eschatological, in fact, I can go ahead and make this larger since we've got, you've had time to write all that down already. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. There will be a future kingdom for Israel and all of their being plundered will be over and done. Then they will do the plundering. I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. This is the mountain he ascended from on the day he ascended. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north, the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. Isn't this fun? You know, God provides the way of escape. And just when you think there is no way of escape, all of a sudden the mountain splits north and south, and now there's a valley. There never was a valley there before. Where'd that come from? Well, hey, guess what? Run. (laughs) Okay? The way of escape, just when you thought there wasn't one. You will flee. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee. Just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. By the way, that includes us. We'll be riding on white horses. We'll be following the Lord. You know why? Because 1 Thessalonians 4 says, thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay? So if the Lord is here, where are we? With him right here. That's right. And the holy ones with him. This includes angels. This includes resurrected humans. This includes the bride of Christ. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night will come about at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Here's another clue. We're talking about the millennium still. We're talking about this earth still because there's an eastern sea and there's a western sea. In the new earth there is no more sea. So these are the little clues you pick up on when you're trying to divide between millennial studies and fullness of time studies. The millennium is not the fullness of time. The millennium is the last age on this earth. The fullness of time is on the new earth, in the new heavens and on the new earth. The fact that we see eastern sea and western sea here is a clue. And so the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, his name the only one. The land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise. Huge topographical change. It will be lifted up like a plateau. Remain on its side from Benjamin's gate as far as the place, the first gate to the corner gate. You have the dimensions of this. By the way, it's, it's a good thing because the present geography of Jerusalem isn't big enough. The, the temple described in, in Ezekiel, when you read through Ezekiel 40 through 48, That temple is too big to fit on any place, any mountain, any spot in Jerusalem today. We need a bigger Jerusalem. But we're going to get a bigger Jerusalem in the millennium. And we're going to get a new Jerusalem come down after this heaven and earth are destroyed. Anyway. And then there's uh, deliverance, and then there's this. Let me get down. Verse 16. 
It will come about that any who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem, these are now the survivors, tribulational survivors, those that enter into the millennium, those that are, when, when things are restructured for the millennial order, of the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So every Gentile king, and I don't know if they're going to be as many as there are now, 185 nations or 192 nations today. Uh, will there be that many or fewer, more? We don't know. But however many there are, every nation that's not the Jewish nation has to go here and worship Jesus Christ on the Feast of Booths. They're kings. It'll be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. There will be no rain on them. Now notice it doesn't say if a country doesn't do it. It says the ones that don't. And more and more are going to start refusing as the thousand years unfold. I believe by the time it gets to the end. This is part of what the vain thing is about. The conspiracy. The, they're plotting. They're planning. And it's very well we're told that some are going to be feigning obedience. They're going to be faking it. So they show up at the Feast of Booths, but they're not really worshiping. They're just there to keep the water on. (laughs) And uh, supplying these other nations with water, I believe, part of their conspiracy. But they get their rain shut off. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And you know what? There's going to be Gentile nations that are okay with that. I said, we don't need your reign. We don't need you. And they're going to be growing more and more bitter against Jesus Christ and His rule. See? This is why prophetically we want to understand when we're watching the news and we're seeing these malcontents, what's going to make them happy? Nothing. They have a satanic misery and nothing will make them happy. Because even with perfect government and perfect environment, you still have satanic rebellion against God. So, this is the punishment on Egypt, the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Anyway, do a search through the Psalms, find the examples of the feigned obedience, find some other principles that you have at work there connected to uh, the Millennial Kingdom and uh, you'll start to get the better picture for what I call the failure of the millennium. And that's what it is. Every dispensation has ended in failure. The millennium likewise will have a rebellion against Jesus Christ. Important that we uh, identify with that. All right. Now we're ready for verse 3. Back to Proverbs 20. Are you tempted to quarrel? Proverbs 20 and verse 3. Give it a rest. In fact, provide a Sabbath for your quarreling. Proverbs 20 and verse 3 says, Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Proverbs 20 and verse 3. Keeping away from strife, really <clears throat> giving strife a rest, providing a Sabbath. The verb there is where, is where we get our Sabbath vocabulary and aspects on that. The verb for um, quarreling, 
Okay? The idea of reeb, R-I-Y-B. It's both a verb and a noun, depending on how you're using it. Same, uh, it looks the same. Reeb and reeb. Uh, Strong's number 7378 is the verb, and, and Strong's number 7379 is the noun. You can tell, though, it's pretty obvious when, when you see it in the sentence, whether it's the verb or the noun, just based on how you've inflected it and how you're using it and where it, where it appears in the sentence. It's not really a, a complicated thing there. But the idea of, of uh, quarreling, this is where uh, we get the name Meribah. Meribah was the place of quarreling. After they uh, walked through the Red Sea, they came to the place of Rephidim, and there was no water, and so they start to grumble. They start to, uh, when we turn to Exodus 17, we see it there in uh, verses 1 through 7. I'll look at that before we leave this slide, but first of all, the idea of quarreling. Proverbs says quite a bit about it. All right? And uh, we want to, <laughs> it's more than just, um, it's more than just a, a parent saying, get along, don't fight, okay? It's more, it's so much more than that. The, the, the wisdom of God's word shaping our attitude, shaping our reverence, shaping our, our love for God and our love for one another. Ultimately, when you're quarreling, you, you don't love the Lord your God and you don't love your, your neighbor as yourself. And so we have the reflection of that in the, the quarreling that happens. And when it happens between brothers, that's the worst of all. And Satan loves to stir that up and it's, it's an abomination as God sees it. So we've had this in, in a number of places. But the best thing we can do is just let it rest. Give it a rest. Just, uh, you know, give your quarrel a day off. <laughs> Tell your quarrel, all right, quarrel, uh, Mr. Reeb, you're on, uh, or I, usually quarrel I think is a feminine, so it'd be Reba, Reba. Anyway, just give your, uh, give your quarrel the day off. Say, you're, you're officially on Sabbath. We're going to have a quarrel Sabbath today. No quarrels today. And uh, in doing so, it's actually an honor. It is a kavod, it is a, it is a weight of glory. Because any fool can quarrel. <laughs> any fool will quarrel, okay? Anyway, there's two terms here. Reeb is the first one, the second one is in, in parallel to that. And, uh, and it's not, uh, it takes no glory whatsoever to, to pick a fight or to, uh, to respond, to fight fire with fire. Any, any fool can do that. But a glory, a weight of honor to decline. Okay? Anyway, this is what we have here. So keep in mind the next time someone picks a fight, they're picking a fight with you. You don't have to respond. You could choose rather to uh, display a weight of glory instead. These terms are used uh, in several places throughout Proverbs. It's not really new to us. We've had it already in chapter 15. 17 and 18, so we've had it several times already. I don't know that I've stressed them or, or made a big deal out of the, the Reeb vocabulary. I don't recall having made much of an emphasis on it, but let's take a look at it. Proverbs 15 and verse 18. In fact, let me go ahead and just do this since I can. Let's do a, here we go.
Love it when a plan comes together. All right, so here's the whole Old Testament. That's a lot of uses, 283 uses, 242 verses. We can't look at all those. Let's just limit it to Proverbs. In fact, I can go ahead and limit it here just to Proverbs. All right. Still, that's a lot of uses. 17 results and 14 verses. A lot of them are the verb or the, or the uh, noun or both. All right, but we're going to start with 1518. There was an earlier one in Proverbs 3. Do not reeve, do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Well, that makes sense. Why are you picking a fight with somebody when, without a cause? Proverbs 1518. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a reeve, calms a dispute. Same term that we're looking at here in, in chapter 20. So, uh, yeah, someone's picking a fight with you and, and your, uh, your, your German genetics decide they want to they participate because, hey, that sounds fun and that's what Germans do, let's fight. And then you've got to stop and say, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't want that hot temper to get a hold of me here. Let's, so let's slow things down. God himself is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He expects me to, uh, to imitate that and to be Christ-like in my, in my expression. If I'm going to love the Lord my God, if I'm going to love my neighbor, then uh, how about if I can calm this dispute right here? And uh, perhaps something can be said or done or some kind of thing will, will uh, glorify Christ and, and win my brother. So that's the application on that. Also in chapter 17, this was a better than statement, you might remember. Better as a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife, with wreath. Okay? And so, yeah, you realize that the, this is the spiritual component here and, and uh, you know, who wants a dry morsel? You know, I'd rather have a feast. Ah, but not at the expense of, of my spiritual peace. I w- I'd rather have the quietness and a, and a meager meal than uh, all the strife and, uh, and the party. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Yeah, remember this one? This is like what happens when, the, when there's a, uh, a hole in the dike, when, the, when you're letting water through over a dam. And, uh, and all you got to do is just start the strife. And then before you know it, it's out of control. It's like a flood. It's just rushing. And, and, and you, you, know, you didn't think it was that big of a deal, but it, it just started small, right? Look where it went. Look what it did. And sometimes the biggest, uh, the, the biggest things, the biggest turmoil in a nation, the biggest historical events that, that change things, they start off pretty small. And you think, oh, what's the big deal? And uh, now you know, well, it's out of control. Where's it going next? So uh, pretty, uh, pretty applicable, I think, here, Proverbs seventeen fourteen, Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Don't participate in it. Someone wants to pick a fight with you, Ask yourself, what's the will of God in this? Proverbs 18.6 A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. Yeah, consequences on that. How many of these did I include on here? Proverbs 15.18, and 14. We saw both of those. 18.6 and 17.26. Okay. Yeah, it's the same list we're looking at here. 
So a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. I mean, seriously, what is the point? <laughs> what is the, when you let your mouth cause a, cause a, a, a fight, why are you doing that? Is, that? is that a spiritual ministry? Do you have the spiritual gift of strife building? Is that, <laughs> you know, let no word escape your lips, but one such as is good for edification It's got to be seasoned with grace. The whole idea that you can use words to hurt people, yes, you can, but why are you? When is that ever in the will of God? Ever. See, and even uh, even the rebukes, even the when 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 you're teaching doctrine and you're chewing somebody out biblically, that's not to make them feel bad. That's not to tear them down. It's to build them up. It's to spark repentance. It's speaking the truth in love. But to use your lips to, to spread strife, that's the slanderer. That's what, it's one of the titles for Satan. That's what ha diabolos is all about. The slanderer. Using words to tear somebody down. And uh, get involved in that and you're a fool. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. Ah, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Yeah, this can be in a, in a judicial setting too where you do have an adversarial relationship in a, in a court setting. You've got a plaintiff, you have a defendant, you have uh, a strife that takes place. And so uh, sometimes this expression can be judicial, not always. Anyway, that's eighteen seventeen. Of course, 20 and verse 3 is our passage today. Give it a rest. Put strife on Sabbath and it's an honor for a man. Because any fool will quarrel. All right. And then 26 and 30. Yeah, there's some others in 22 and 23 and 25 that are judicial, and I skipped over those. All right, 26, 17. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. No, I'm not a dog person. Some of you here have dogs, so you, you know, you can tell me, is this accurate? You know, do you want to grab a dog by the ears? And um, I suspect most dogs don't like that. All right. And so why are you doing that? And especially if, if it's not even your strife, it's not even your fight, you're going to jump in the middle of something? You want both sides to tear you apart? Okay. I tell you, back to my law enforcement days, uh, the scariest thing in the world is showing up at a domestic disturbance and you get there and there's a husband and a wife and they're fighting and maybe the husband was just beating on her and punching her or whatever. I tell you, this is a true story. You can separate them. You can put the man in cuffs. That woman will attack you. Okay? And she'll hit you from behind. <laughs> Can't explain it. All right. There is a, there is a, uh, yeah. There's a spirit at work, and it's not the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you that. So that's Proverbs 26, 17, also verse 21. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. A contentious man to kindle strife. And, and you know, it may go up faster than you realize. And you, and you just put a little spark out there. You don't realize... Oh, that's, that's dry tinder ready to go up. 
And the smallest little flame is going to ignite the whole thing. The churning of anger produces strife. Yeah, the churning of milk produces butter. Pressing the nose brings forth blood. The churning of anger produces strife. So don't keep it churning. Don't, you know, that's the thing. We, 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 we fume, we fret, we frume, we, we, we grumble. We, and, and the more we're dwelling on it, the more we're just churning it, churning it, churning it, churning it. Waiting to explode the whole thing. All right. That was kind of fun. Let's bring that back down. Nope. I've got to get better at doing that. All right. So if you're tempted to quarrel, give it a rest. Give it a rest. And uh, this is the basis for the naming of Meribah, Exodus chapter 17. We can take a look at that, Exodus 17. Oh, here I go again using paper. Why am I using paper? That's so first century. All right, so they've been redeemed. They've left Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They've worshipped and celebrated on the other side. They even sang a song. Miriam and the girls were dancing. Things seemed great. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? I mean, exactly. What's, what's Moses supposed to say here? He's following the cloud. <laughs> okay? He's following, he's doing what he's told to do. And if the Lord brought him here, the Lord knows what he's doing. What are you arguing with Moses for? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Does that make any sense? <laughs> you know? Like, you know, there's, there's easier ways to kill somebody than to redeem them out of Egypt, walk them through the Red Sea on dry ground, you know? If you wanted them dead, how about just dropping the Red Sea on top of them? Isn't that easier? Bring them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Bring them by stages in, in the march to this place. I mean, what's so special about Rephidim? You can bring them here so they can die of thirst? Is that, you think... I mean, what kind of moron would do that? And, you know, God wouldn't do that. It wouldn't make any sense. Let's see, here's the thing. The, uh, the rioting crowd, they don't have to make sense. They just have to agree with themselves. <laughs> and then they can demand that you do something about it. So, you're just trying to kill us here with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. The Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So he's going to have leadership, he's got the staff, the elders are with him. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So this is the the early episode where he's commanded to strike the rock, and he does so. He strikes the rock. Later there'll be an episode where he's told to speak to the rock, and he blows it, 
because Moses has a temper fit, and so he strikes it when he was told to speak to it. So he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so you get a verb for testing, you get a verb for quarreling. The verb for quarreling is the reeb that we have in Proverbs 20, and that's where we get the, put an M in front of it, you get marib, give it a female ending, maribah, and that's how you turn reeb into maribah, and you get the, uh, the name of the place here. All right. They tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The sluggard. The sluggard makes his seventh appearance in Proverbs, right here, Proverbs 20 and verse 4. In fact, he has seven more still to come. That's a lot of work for a sluggard. (laughs) You mean he's got to show up in 14 separate passages in the book of Proverbs? Man, out of all the characters... That, uh, that Proverbs uses for different, uh, different illustrations, different things. I think the slugger is the one that has to do the most work with 14 separate appearances through the book. I don't know, I just find that amusing. Okay, maybe it's just me. But this is his seventh appearance here. The slugger does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. You know, you've got to understand, if you're a farmer, if you, if you, uh, you've got to understand where you are, what the climate's like, what are the seasons... When do the rains come? What, and, uh, and you can't just do it on your timetable. It is what it is. So uh, after the autumn, you, it's, it's cold, it's wet, it's nasty. It is the, uh, it is the rainy season for the, uh, for the Middle East, for, particularly for Israel there. And so, uh, but, but that's what it needs. The ground needs that moisture. And then once it's soggy enough and mucky enough, then, uh, then you've got to get out there and plow it. You've got to break it up so that you're, uh, you're not just throwing seed on the surface, you're actually breaking up the, the seed. I know about as much of farming as I do about dogs, <laughs> so I'll, I'll stop rambling. But I, as I understand it, if you're not willing to do the work on the schedule that is required, it's not going to work around your schedule. Because, you know, you're a lazy slug anyway and you'll never get around to it in the first place. So then you show up at harvest time and wonder, gee, how come my crop hasn't grown up yet? Well, because you never plowed. You never plowed, you never sowed, you didn't do anything back in the day. What do you expect is going to happen now? And this is such a a shocking thing. And I think we're, again, (laughs) I'm sorry that so much of my message this morning is coming right out of the news, but it's, uh, it's what we're dealing with. What our nation is dealing with. And the idea that decisions don't have consequences, seriously? You know, the idea that, uh, that cause doesn't have an effect or that, that uh, you know, that, well, where's my harvest? Well, what did you sow? What did you plow? What did you work? What did you produce? And since you didn't work and you didn't produce, what makes you think you're entitled to something that somebody else produced? So you're going to be a beggar? Is that what it's about? Anyway, the idea of asking, the idea of begging, and the, the vocabulary that's here is curious to me. 
We have the privilege of asking. We have the privilege of prayer to go to our Father. But the one that we ask in prayer is the one that has commanded us to work. (laughs) So um, notice uh, these beggars, they're not asking God. They're going around to ask their, uh, their neighbor. They're going around to ask others. Looking around. Where's my crops? Anyway, this is our seventh time that we've been dealing with the sluggard. Um, you probably remember most of these anyway from Proverbs 6, verses 6 and 9. We'll run through these in the seven minutes we have left. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. This is where we're introduced into the fact that you can look at nature and you can see these busy little ants. And uh, it's a visual aid that God has given us. Look at these little guys. Having no chief, officer, or ruler. They really do, but we know that now. But what, what did they know back then? Prepares her food uh, for in the summer. Gathers provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? Exactly how long do you intend to keep up this sluggard routine? Isn't this long enough? Oh no. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. This is the favorite song. This is the, you know, five more minutes, mom. This is the snooze alarm. That never stops. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. So that's our introduction to the sluggard in Proverbs 6. Proverbs ten twenty six. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. See, it's not just you. You're not just harming yourself. You want to be a slug, be a slug. But you're actually harming others, those that are depending on you, those that have sent you places, those that have commissioned you for different duties. And you're just vinegar and smoke to them. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Isn't that interesting? We talked about this. It's not just, we're not just talking about personality traits. We're not just talking about earthly um, mannerisms and, 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 and secular or temporal life consequences. There's actual soul damage that's done. We are in the image of God. We are commanded to work. It is suitable to us. And the sluggard is, is in defiance of that. It actually uh, destroys the capacity. You can crave. You've got soul craving, soul desires, but you don't have the capacity as God designed it to have those desires met because you're too lazy. You just want everything handed to you. And the soul isn't designed like that. We're commanded to work. We're actually well-pleased. We can be like God who on day seven looked around and said, I did a pretty good job there. <laughs> Take the time to reflect. So we're commanded to rest. And that's what uh, we learned in, the, in the, the Hebrews principle of entering into rest. As God rested from His work, so we rest from ours. And we look back with reflection and say, thank you. Identifying that it's very good. Anyway, I'm looking forward to Genesis. It's coming up. The soul of the diligent is made fat. It's a healthy soul when you're diligent about your work assignment. That's Proverbs 13.4, Proverbs 15.19. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright 
is a highway. A lot of these just preach themselves, don't they? <laughs> so if you're trying to get somewhere, you want to take the highway or do you want to slug your way through a hedge of thorns? Which one sounds better? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then do you want to walk the upright walk or do you want to be a spiritual sluggard? 1924. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish will not even bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> yeah, this was just a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 19. A few weeks back. I mean, this is, this is like the pinnacle of lazy. If you are so lazy that putting your hand in the dish is about as far as you can get and you can't even get the food to your mouth, yeah. And there's seven more to come. Chapter 21, 22, 24, 26. The big one there in 26. How quickly can we get through these? The desire of the sluggard puts him to death for his hands refuse to work. Self-destructive behavior. He won't work, but he has desires. So he tries shortcuts. Every way except the plan of God to accomplish what you want. And it's deadly. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. Yeah, there's always an excuse, right? There's a lion in the streets. Your neighbor says, I don't see a lion. What are you talking about? Proverbs 24, 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. It's heart damaging. He is deficient of heart. And you actually do your own heart damage with your sluggard attitudes. And you see the terrible conditions there in the, in the description of this vineyard. And here's the song again. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You know, he made up that song when he was a little kid and he's still singing it. Years later, your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Finally, Proverbs twenty six thirteen. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road, a lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. <laughs> so instead of getting out of bed, what's he doing? He's just rolling over, you know. And it's just like a door on a hinge. The door doesn't go anywhere. It, it can turn on the hinge. That's the sluggard. He never gets out of bed. He just rolls over again. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. We're bringing it to his mouth again. That's a repeat from chapter 19. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Good luck talking any wisdom into him. He knows it all anyway. You can't tell a know-it-all anything. Even if the seven smartest guys you know show up, the sluggard's not going to listen. All right. Well, there we have it. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the book of Proverbs. Thank you for the blessings of studying the shore of self-approved. And Father, this book is so practical. Was it really written 3,000 years ago? It's, uh, it's speaking to us here today. So open our eyes and bless each one of us in our personal walk, in our marital walk, in our family walk, in our church walk, in our national walk. Bless our nation, Father. Bring us to repentance. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.